0: Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. This Sunday brings to a close the ecclesiastical year, at least in the Western tradition the year that began last year uh, at this time with the first Sunday of Advent, which will be next week for us. So we've gone through an entire cycle. We moved through Advent and to Christmas with the birth of Christ, then to Epiphany with the revelation of who Christ is, and then to Lent where we joined with Christ's suffering as he first joined his suffering with ours, and then to Easter, the biggest feast of the year where Christ defeats death and institutes, inaugurates a new life in the world. Then we learned from the resurrected Christ for 40 days until his ascension, where we saw him crowned as king over all creation. Then we waited and prayed for him to send the Holy Spirit on us at Pentecost. And then with the coming of the Spirit, the revelation, the full revelation of the Trinity— is completed. And we celebrated this on the following Sunday with Trinity. And we've been working out the implications of all of that through the rest of the season called Trinity Tide. And now we come to the last Sunday of Trinity Tide. And this is sort of a linchpin Sunday. It connects the old year to the new because it touches both. And I think it anticipates the new year, we heard, in, uh, instead of having an epistle reading, we had a lesson reading from Jeremiah where we hear that the, the kingdom of God is coming. Already we hear this anticipatory message of Advent beginning today, that it's coming. So today anticipates the season of Advent starting next Sunday, but it also sums up all of this previous year. And as tempting as it is to jump into Advent themes, I'm not going to touch on so much how this Sunday anticipates Advent, but more today how it sums up everything that we've been through over the last year. And I think it sums up this year with a crucial lesson exemplified in the gospel gospel story, and that is this, that Christ is our life. What's the central lesson of the entire Bible? I mean, this whole big book is made up of many other little books all with their particular stories, their particular subjects and focuses that add up to a grand narrative that we call the gospel, the gospel story. It's a story of a fall and a rescue, right? Of God coming to us when we were unable to come to God. Right, but for what purpose? Why did God come to us? What does he bring to us when he comes? What's the purpose? Why is he rescuing us? Well, his ultimate purpose, I think, for us, what we were meant to be both at the beginning and in the future for all eternity, is living creatures. The glory of God is a man fully alive, said uh, uh, St. Irenaeus in the early 2nd century. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. We were always meant to be fully alive creatures. That was God's purpose for us, but we lost our life, the fullness of our life at the beginning of this story. On that day that our ancestors stole the forbidden fruit, when they failed to keep their fasting rule, something we're going to try to do better at starting next Sunday with Advent, they surely died as God said that they would. But we might ask, did they really die? It looks like they just realized they were naked and then kept on living. Did the servant have a point when he told them, You're not going to die that day. It depends on what kind of dying and what kind of life you're talking about. When they kept breathing, when they didn't drop dead right then and there, what they realized was that they still had a biological life that was running, right? Bios or bios, the Greek word for it is. And they looked around and realized that all the animals had the same thing going on. They were living the same kind of life now as the animals. And we see this poignantly when God covers them with the skins of animals, these skins of, of flesh. Now this is their defining feature, this fleshly life. And that bios, they were able to pass on to their sons, to all of their progeny, and finally to us. Bios' life began for every one of us at our conception, and it has perpetuated in us all to this day as we sit here. But it also runs down. Some of us may be feeling the effects of that today. It ran down for our ancestors, Adam and Eve, and Cain, and Noah, and Moses, and David, and Joseph, and Mary, and John, who wrote today's gospel, and on and on and on. They've all tasted the end of that bios, that biological life. They've all tasted animal death. When Adam and Eve died on that day, what died was their access to the second mysterious fruit in the garden, the fruit of the tree of life. And what kind of life was this tree offering? After all, they already got biological life from all the other fruits of the garden that God gave them to eat. But this tree of life was apparently offering something different than that, something greater. There's another kind of life that the Greeks had a word for. They called it Zoe. C.S. Lewis distinguished between bios life and Zoe life in his book, Mere Christianity, identifying the prior as that animal life we share with the other creatures on earth, and the latter as the spiritual or divine life. And that's what we lost when our first parents were banished from the garden, from paradise. A cherub with a flaming sword had barred the way back access to Zoe was cut off. I want to make a distinction here that I think sometimes we can get confused about. It's not that Adam and Eve were never supposed to have access to the tree of life. God, in fact, never told them in the Genesis narrative, don't eat this. He told them, don't eat the other tree, don't eat that. They almost certainly were intended to have access to that tree of life. Why else was it created and planted there? But they lost access to it because they warped their own being when they stole that other fruit, shortcutting their knowledge of good and evil and failing to let God guide them into a knowledge of good and evil. Mere youths that they were. The fathers of the church talk about Adam and Eve as if they were these, these young creatures. Uh, even if they were you know, these adult figures uh, spiritually and emotionally and psychologically, they were still they had a lot to learn and we can assume that God was going to be there guiding them into their vocation but they shortcut that process when they took the fruit and as if by magic it all hit them at once and they realized that they were unprepared for the life that God was guiding them to and so they lost access and we've all inherited this warping this change in nature that Adam and Eve brought upon us it's not that we share their guilt for that particular sin but we do share the consequence of it. just like we all know that we have to endure the consequences of other people's sin. Well, we all as a race have to endure the consequence of our first parents' sin. In fact, sin isn't, strictly speaking, a foregone conclusion of our nature. It's incredibly likely, maybe 99.999% sure, that we're all going to sin in our lives, but this isn't something that's foregone. In fact, God warns Cain at the beginning that sin is starting to creep up on him and he warns him that he should watch out for it and master it. So we see that God expects that it's a possibility that you can master sin. And we've even seen someone in our history who we believe was helped through some very special grace, someone who you could say was full of grace in order to always reject that sin when it crept up, crept up someone whose uh, uh, dedication to the service of God we actually commemorate today. That's the Virgin Mary. And we uh, today also commemorate her dedication to uh, the temple. But even she needed a savior. Why? Because she, like the rest of us, was in her very nature unable to get back to paradise, to have access to that tree of life. She couldn't skirt that cherub with the flaming sword any more than any of the rest of us could and no human being no matter how good even sinless could reopen paradise it was closed at god's command for our own good actually so that being constantly buffeted by temptation and weakness and etc we wouldn't prolong that misery for eternity by eating of that fruit and having this immortal divine life death in that sense is actually a mercy on us to limit our trials But what was the end of that story? Death and then this ongoing, indeterminate existence in a shadowy underworld. Is that really going to be our final doom? No, thanks be to God. God solved this conundrum in the most astounding and beautiful and perfect way. He put on our nature, the nature that was wounded, and healed it. He healed the wounds that our parents had inflicted on it and made a way for us to put his perfected humanity, now joined with his divinity, into us, to transfer his perfected life into our own lives, into our natures. This new Christ life, we put on and into ourselves in these ways, through baptism. God does something spiritually to us which truly efficaciously washes our nature, kills off the spiritual death in our nature, and coats us or clothes us with Christ's new human nature. Faith is another way that we do this, by believing, that is, trusting wholly in Christ and living in such a way as to be faithful to him. That's a way for his life to get into us when we go to him in trust and live like we believe he's going to take care of us. And then most amazingly and astoundingly of all, the third way we get Christ's life into us is through the Holy Communion, Eucharist, where in a sacramental way, we literally ingest Christ's new human and divine nature as food. These are the means by which we get Christ's life into us, that we catch his new life, through good infection, C.S. Lewis called it. In today's gospel story, we see an example from Christ's ministry where, so much more than merely feeding people with plain food and extending their mere bios, he's enacting a story, a lesson, teaching a lesson, showing them an example of how he contains within himself all life. He is the source of life. And if he can so effortlessly multiply, Bios life, like we see in the story, then it's to him that we should look for our Zoe life, our divine life. Now is when we are to start feeding on him, even this morning, so that he can begin transforming our nature, continue healing the wounds that we've inherited, transforming us so that we become more and more like him, get more of his life inside us, become more transformed and conformed to him, and even transforming our bios life through this. When we partake of the Eucharist, if we do it wrongly, it can have ill effects on our bios life. If we do it through humility, through his grace, it can have good effects on our bios life. The Christ life can transform even that bios life in us. So many saints throughout history have shown that though their bios life does eventually run down, they leave behind corpses that don't decay as easily and presumably spirits that are more solid in preparation for their eventual resurrection. And speaking of resurrection, what happens then? Are we done feeding on Christ? I don't think so. The first image we have of the triumph of God with his saints in the age to come is the wedding feast of the Lamb. The first thing we see ourselves doing in the future when we are in the presence of God finally is eating. And we call this the feast of the Lamb as if it's the lamb's feast, and that's true, because it's like a wedding feast, he's our bridegroom, we're the bride, but I think it's also the feast of the lamb. I think the lamb is still the feast, even in heaven, where Christ is still seen by St. John in his revelation as the lamb who was slain, that is the sacrifice, that is the meal, Christ even there is our meal, and we still eat him, (laughs) we still partake of him, Partaking of his divine nature is how St. Peter puts it. That's the summation of the story. Christ is our life and there is no other. And in order to live, we must feed on him. That's why this is the summation of our entire year. Looking at this parable and learning the lesson, finally, that Christ is our all in all. He is our life and there is no other. In Narnia, when Jill is dying of thirst, she sees that great Christ lion, Aslan, guarding access to the living stream of water. "'Are you not thirsty?' said the lion. "'I am dying of thirst,' said Jill. "'Then drink,' said the lion. "'May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do?' said Jill." The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. As Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that Without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls? She said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose that I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. No matter where we go looking for sustenance, for life, for fulfillment, we will come up empty because there is nothing that will give us life, what we are created for. We will not be human beings fully alive until we get our lives from Christ. Christ is the only source of life. If we don't realize it in this world, then we will in the next. There is nowhere else to turn. So let us turn to Christ this morning and partake of His life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Amen. Talks at Advent. homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.